Welcome to Women, Conscription and War, a podcast series focused on the actions, motivations and experiences of Melbourne women in the anti-Vietnam War and anti-conscription protests between 1965 and 1972. In case you haven't listened to the introduction to this project and where I give some history of the Vietnam War and conscription in Australia, a few things to keep in mind. First, this is in no way an attack on Vietnam veterans. I am the daughter of one myself. This is filling a gap, not opposing or challenging. Second, I don't necessarily agree with everything my interviewees say, so don't get angry at me for reporting their views. Third, I don't always give the name of the person who's speaking when I use excerpts from interviews. They're always credited on the website, which you'll find at womenconscriptionwar.com. You'll also find complete footnotes for the other work that I've used. Lastly, please note that I have edited these interviews for use in the podcast for clarity and to really hone in on the relevant ideas. There's a, there's a long history of what's called agitprop, agitational prop propaganda. It's ways of coming... It's a bit like advertising, really. It was early advertising. It's what Extinction Rebellion do really well now as well. They come up with images. So we had to come up with images that people could see. And because you're part of a demonstration and it's moving along a street... You have to come up with performance images that tell a story very quickly that people can see in passing and get something from. Forms of protest can be as varied as your imagination allows. Suffragettes in England in the early part of the 20th century made puzzles and games, created banners and wrote songs alongside their more violent actions. People involved in the protests against the Vietnam War also used creative means to express their opposition. I've had the chance to speak to two women who were, or rather are, folk singers and performed at various protests against the Vietnam War and conscription, as well as two women who were involved in theatre groups who used street theatre as part of their protest. You'll hear their stories later in the podcast, but I want to start by discussing two women who have already passed away. One name that crops up quite often in the archival material, especially with regard to the group Save Our Sons, is Corinne Kirby. She was born in 1926 and died in 2003. She was a high-profile TV broadcaster with the ABC and a poet. She was a member of Save Our Sons, and according to a 1991 master's thesis by Pauline Armstrong, her television career suffered because of her high-profile involvement with that group. She was often a speaker at SOS events. Another name that frequently occurs in this context is Glenn Tomasetti. By the time of the Vietnam War, she already had a career as a folk singer, starting in the late 1950s. She was involved with Save Our Sons from pretty early on, and I do have a whole episode about Save Our Sons if you're interested. Tomasetti used her music to make a point, and if you've listened to any other episodes, you've already heard some of her perhaps most famous song, The Ballad of Bill White. 
because it's the sting between each section in each episode. Along with The Ballad of Bill White, Tomasetti wrote one other song that references the Vietnam War, and that's The Army's Appeal to Mothers. It's short, sharp, and a bit brutal. It tells you exactly what Tomasetti thought of the situation. to be sensitive don't bring him up to be kind don't bring him up to believe that a man can use his heart and mind when it comes to twisting a bayonet or sticking in the boot he'll find it so much easier if you bring him up as a brute he'll find it so much easier if you bring him up as a brute so when he argues with a friend teach him he should fight that the crunch of a jaw and flesh that's raw is a source of keen delight He won't be short of women, those Saigon girls are cute But he'll find it so much easier if you bring him up as a brute He'll find it so much easier if you bring him up as a brute Please teach him how to see the world at the Commonwealth's expense Teach him killing civilians is essential to our defence Teach him to hate each foreign name, colour, race or tongue Cos he'll make a happier soldier if you brutalise him young Make a happier soldier, mum, if you brutalise him young When it comes to twisting a bayonet or sticking in the boot He'll find it so much easier if you bring him up as a brute My thanks to Sarah Tomasetti, Glenn's literary executor, for allowing me to use her mother's work here. Because it's a bit longer, I'll leave The Ballad of Bill White to the end of this episode – It's definitely worth the wait to hear it in its entirety. Tomasetti performed at various events aimed at raising awareness of the issue of the Vietnam War and national service. In either November or December 1965, I found two different dates, the Vietnam Day Committee organised a concert called Songs of Peace and Love. It was put on at the Maya Music Bowl, one of Melbourne's great outdoor venues. It's estimated that 10,000 people attended. According to an historian of the period, Malcolm J. Turnbull, it was, quote, the first major response of the folk scene to the issues, and it included the federal Labor politician and outspoken anti-war leader, Dr. Jim Cairns, as a speaker. As well as Glenn Tomasetti, Phil Vinicum, now Phil Lobel, also performed, and you'll hear from her later in this episode. Also performing were Lynn St John and Tina Lawton. Tomasetti also apparently sang at much smaller events than just this one, such as a conference for anti-war activists, which was held in Sydney in 1971. She also helped to organise concerts like the Port Phillip District Folk Music Festival, which is now the National Folk Festival, for which she was on the founding committee. Phil Lobel remembers that. And then you had the National Folk Festival in 1967, which was the first one, which Glenn and four other people were key to organising. And there were lots of concerts leading to that. And always in those concerts, there would be songs about uh, the Vietnam War, anti-conscription and, and Aboriginal situations. Along with her own singing, Tomasetti was important to upcoming singers, such as Margaret Roadnight. And so it was really through the folk music scene that I stumbled upon these other ideas and didn't, didn't mind the people proselytising, you know, that sort of thing. My sort of anti-war peace, peacenik stances were 
imbibed thanks to the folk music scene and people like Glenn Tomasetti, you know. As a final note on Tomasetti, she also took a leaf from some British agitators for women's suffrage by refusing to pay some of her tax. One-sixth of her income tax, in fact. The proportion that she believed was roughly what the Commonwealth would spend on war and preparation for war. Now, she was someone who could do so because her income was from concerts and royalties and so on, rather than a fortnightly wage. I think she also knew that she would get into trouble for this and therefore would have the opportunity to state her case in public. In November 1967, that's exactly what happened when she appeared in the Melbourne District Court. A couple of months later, in an article in The Age of February 1968, she mentioned that her bank had been ordered to pay the $40 owing from her account, or they, the bank, would face a $100 fine. Phil Vinicom, now Phil Lobel, was born in 1937 and was already active in the peace scene by the time the Vietnam War started. Then another big thing I took part in, or it seemed big to me, was a walk. But the peace movement, because there was an active peace movement, and it was left-wing, of course, and uh, it was a walk from Frankston to the city, and they did it every year. You'd, you'd, you'd get the train to Frankston, and you'd walk back halfway. Then you'd get off the train, because it was nighttime by then, and you'd... Uh, come back the next day and get on the train again and get to the city and then there'd be a big concert and kind of barbecue come thing at night. And uh, it was two days of walking and singing and, uh, yeah, all of that. So there was there was that. So there was my music bowl, my auditorium, the National Folk Festival, walk from Frankston to the city. <laughs> and there were numerous small uh, fundraisers and talks by activists and, yeah, people were very keyed up especially conscription. I've found reference to Phil singing at at least one event organised by the Youth Campaign Against Conscription in 1966. Phil has given me permission to include one of her songs here. It's called Seasons of War. Spring, summer, autumn, winter, war has all the seasons one and two three and four man will give the reasons soldier in the spring of war knows just what he's fighting for told so many times before fighting for his freedom Spring, summer, autumn, winter, war has all the seasons. One and two, three and four, man will give the reasons. Come the summer, fall is growing, and the fruit of war is showing. Pain and hate he will be knowing, fighting for his freedom. Spring, summer, autumn, winter, war has all the seasons. One and two, three and four, man will give the reasons. When his friends begin to fall, and the bombs rain down on all, then he hears the autumn call, fighting for his freedom. 
Spring, summer, autumn, winter, war has all the seasons. One and two, three and four, man will give the reasons. Winter finds the glory gone, war is great to look upon. Soldier wonders what he's won. Fighting for his freedom. Spring, summer, autumn, winter. War has all the seasons. One and two, three and four. Man will give the reasons. Born in 1943, Margaret Roadnight played at, in her words, pretty much any event she was asked to, including the May 1970 moratorium. And then you'd get tapped on the shoulder to come and sing for various causes. And usually, well, if I agreed with the cause, but almost always I did, happy to do it. You look back and think, uh, I should have stamped my foot occasionally and said production value should be up a bit higher than that. I look at the classic photo of me on the on the back of a truck in in Burke Street, I think it was, and the whole of Burke Street's, you know, locked down with half, That's half a million. That's the moratorium, I think, the first Yeah, moratorium. the moratorium, yeah. yeah. And, I mean, there's a few photos of that, of that, and one and one of them you can see Jim Cairns behind me on the truck. But if you look closely, you know, there's one microphone. I've got an acoustic, we didn't do plug-in guitars back then, and I have an acoustic guitar and one microphone. And, well, for a start, you need a minimum of two outdoors with, you know, rather large gathering on the back of a truck. However, it, it seems to work. It was part of the tapestry that, that uh, obviously did the trick. Other performers were also involved at the moratorium and other events. They included Wendy Saddington. Now, I can't find much information about her, except that she apparently told a teen music magazine called Go Set that the Vietnam War stinks. I've also found that she performed on the 10th of May 1970, alongside Glenn Tomasetti and many others, as part of the moratorium events. As established performers, Phil and Margaret were both expressly invited to sing at various events. Robin Laurie and Kerry Dwyer had a different experience by taking part in street theatre during various protest marches, and particularly the moratorium. But our street theatre was, we wore the black pyjamas and the conical hats that the peasants were wearing, and also that some of the NLF wore too, and, and that was sort of those, that was a part of our the images we used. We wrote songs and we made like versions of tableaus. There was a Russian director called Meyerhold who in the 20s, around about the time of the Russian Re- Revolution, had come up with this idea about biomechanics that involved a very detailed set of images and tableaus and structures. And so we used some of his ideas. And we were familiar with with the history of, I guess, cultural shifts and shifts that had happened in times of great social transformation, like, you know, modernist art around about the First World War and the changes in cinema in the 30s, Fritz Lang and 
Bethel Brecht and people like that, all of those sorts of things. So, And the surrealists, you know, their interest in the unconscious and the irrational. So we understood some of the history that then informed at an intuitive level, I think, some of what we created to perform in the street. But there's a remarkable thing. I mean, it must be like what big bands feel. You know, we would perform... There was a city square on the corner of Collins and Swanson Street and we performed there a few times and sometimes there was sort of 10,000 people squashed around that little area and the energy that as performers you got from the crowd was amazing and incredibly uh, exciting really. So we wanted to support the liberation struggle, the, the Vietnamese, and we wanted to do it with the skills that we had, which were creative skills, visual skills. There were people who, whose number came up and they didn't want to go and they, you know, like conscientious objectors were, were, were like John Zab, for example, who was a student, he was, he was in prison. So when we did our street theatre for the big moratorium march in 1970, we had a whole set, we had a, a scene, a little seeing the scenario that we would would do this kind of weaving in amongst the crowd in our costumes and when they'd stop and then do a, a free Zab image <laughs> with him imprisoned, you know, back in front and behind with people making a cage, you know. So we we would snake through the crowd and then we would stop and create a space so the people around us could stop for, on the march and watch this scenario like the free Zab one, for example, and then and we do another one was um, the flying wedge, which was about, you know, the way that the police would attack us. So we'd have this triangular shape and we'd sort of move through the crowd, talk, you know. I think those images are really um, have a very powerful effect on people who watch them, yeah. Yep. And at the time, did you get a good response or people yeah. just... Oh, well, there were some people just working on but we did basically get a good result. We also had a, a guy, a big tall guy who had a big bass drum and he was sort of boom, boom, you know, so we had a thing. But we, we did, we spread out through the long, um, through the length of the of the march so we didn't, we didn't always hear that, that, that beat but that was sort of, that, that galvanised us at the top. We were up at the top of Spring Street, we were all there. Was the 1970 moratorium kind of one of your really big moments of street yeah. theatre? Had you been doing stuff before that as well? Uh, we had, but not to the same extent. That was the big one because we, the the Lala Mama group, the, which was which became this, I don't know which was first. I think we already were the Australian performing group. Uh, we joined up with Tribe, which was a more, um, more even more alternative group, and we did we trained in the park opposite where we lived in Carlton Street in acrobatics. We, we were very fit, you know, we trained up for it and we created these images and we, as a group, you know, there was quite a big group of us and we, we created a whole stack of images and, and um, yeah, I don't know what else, how to describe it. It was, that was the biggest one, yeah. And had you been mm. invited to do that or did you hear about the moratorium and say we need to perform? Oh, we must have heard about it. We we had connections. We had connections to people in the in the on the left, and we heard, must have heard about it. In fact, we would have heard about it. Yeah, and we decided to do it. It was our our initiative. You talk about you know the group that you were in and 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 acting with. What sort of people were in that group? How how many how many people might be in one of those? At La Mama, there could have been anything up to 20. 
20, 25, you know, anything from 10 to 20, really. And then once we moved to the pram factory around the corner, a similar number, really, but the pram factory itself, there was about 50 people involved in that, but not all of them would have gone on all the demos or been in the street theatre. But because it was a very open... Anybody could come along, really. At the Pram Factory, there were these things called supper shows that happened and, and anybody could come along and do things. And So when we were rehearsing to do street theatre, we might rehearse in a park. And I don't know how word got around then because we didn't have mobile phones, but someone would ring someone up and tell someone and someone would meet someone in the street and someone would have a cup of tea with someone and people would just turn up. So there was, you know, sometimes there was a mix of people there too. But, yeah, it would have been anything from 10 to 20, possibly up to 30, but mainly in that 10 to 20 range. So quite striking. And, you know, and yet we needed to make our own costumes and things, find stuff in op shops or make things. So they were costumed and there was makeup and things like that. Both men and women involved? Yes, yes, men and women and, and yep, yeah, music, instruments. I can't remember exactly who was in it, but I do remember. In fact, there might have even been more women than men because there were also there were women on the out, on the sides who were sort of making the costume. We made, made, had these black um, pyjamas that a couple of the women sewed for us who weren't necessarily in the... You know, there was a group that I would say overall there were more women than men involved in it. But I I can't really, uh, you know, I can't say that for sure because I haven't got the numbers, I haven't got the names. But, yeah, pretty, pretty sure that the women at least equal probably more. Finally, I asked all of these women why they thought their creative responses were important. The the music part of it was rather necessary you can't say are oh, vital but obviously it, w- it was the part of the part of the tapestry of protest rather than just turning up and walking with everyone why add the theater element why not <laughs> because it created an because Im- you know it it, it creates a Something that will live in people's minds. It's an it's an image that's much that's more potent because it's more focused and more concentrated, and the message is very clear. And it's not just you know freedom, you know, and not just peace, freedom, all that sort of stuff. It's really, it's it it sort of draws the crowd in. And sometimes it felt a bit like you know we were the we weren't the serious part of things. <laughs> We thought we were just as important and just as, you know, interesting and useful as anything else. But there were some people who were very, yeah, just had different ideas about how to connect with people, communicate. Sometimes we would be specifically invited, you know, to do a five-minute piece or something like that. So it's like... Now, when there's a demo, sometimes a singer might get up or a band might be asked to perform. So it was like that. What do you think or what were you adding aside from the quote-unquote just entertainment aspect? I think things operate at many different levels. I think words are one, but sometimes you can, there's something else going on as well as the words and you respond, you can see that or hear that and you respond in a different way. And you might not have 
you might not put all that together at the time, but I think sometimes images stay in your head or stay in your heart or body or wherever that an image resides. Sometimes an image can affect you in a way that, and it's different for different people, and it depends if you can find a really powerful image of some kind. But I think they can, and it's like music and dance and circus. I was a part of circus after that. There's a physical interaction between people. It's a kinesthetic response. And it happens because all your senses are involved, I think. And so it's not just an intellectual response. I think that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, you need something that can give you courage to contemplate and confront things that are, are quite difficult in life, I think. Life can be quite hard in many ways. So I think, I think those things that operate at that sort of level can touch something deeper inside maybe. Well, that's the hope. It <laughs> doesn't happen that often, but it, 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 can, it can happen. South Wales there lives a man, a teacher young and true, who would not be conscripted in the ballot of the few. When first they called him up to serve, he went along to court and said, I cannot go against the things I have been taught. Violence leads to violence and pain and useless tears Each war has spawned a bigger war these last 10,000 years Said the judge, would you refuse to fight the strangler of your mother? Come answer this one question now, the court will have no other cannot call my enemies a people far away who've waited now for peace through many a weary night and day and the day of peace will never come the terrors never end if a government says who must be my foe and who my friend judge said William White into the army you must go though your case does not convince me you in action might be slow as a cook or as a slushy as an orderly you'll serve and help the frontline boys who have a different kind of nerve Army's not an army except in time of war. Destruction is the purpose it was created for. I cannot help the military, my flag of hate is furled. My work is teaching children of the wonders of this world. His case and his appeal 
appeal dismissed Then came the intake day To the school and not the barracks He early made his way And when they came to sack him His living to deny He said I want to go back to the class To say goodbye You'll never go back, William White, into that room again. You will not farewell them, and you will not explain. Since you will not carry out for us the plans we call defense, any man who gives you work will be committing an offense. You heard a politician say that was the only course. Have you heard a mad philosopher preach the mind and heart's divorce? Have you heard the dreadful logic of a hanging judge's speech? Then you know the man to whom you'd say, take this child and teach. Thanks for listening to this episode of Women, Conscription and War. If you enjoyed it, maybe you could tell someone else about it or leave a review somewhere to help other people find it. My immense thanks to all the people I spoke to for this episode. You can find a complete list of them on my website, womenconscriptionwar.com, as well as a bibliography and some relevant images. My thanks also to Sarah Tomasetti, who gave permission to use her mother Glenn Tomasetti's music in this project. It's a moment from her song, The Ballad of William White, that you hear between sections throughout this podcast. <laughs>